So, Matthew chapter 3, um, going to be verses 1 to 12, um, if you've got a Bible. But so far in Matthew, uh, chapter 1 was the genealogy, so it's the, the family tree, and everyone, when they see family trees, goes, oh. But if you were here, it was really interesting. If you weren't, you need to watch it online. And then you've got the story of Jesus' birth and the story of these magi from the east coming, bringing him gifts. And then at the end of chapter 2, Jesus and his family, uh, just before the end of chapter 2, they flee to Egypt as refugees um, because Herod the Great, um, probably gave himself that title, um, wanted to kill all the, all the, wanted to kill Jesus, so kind of mass murdered 20 or 30 young boys. Um, and so the end of Matthew chapter 2, you see um, Jesus, M- uh, Mary, and Joseph returning. But they return to the town of Nazareth. And we fast-forwarded probably anywhere from at least 25 years. So they don't know because they don't know how old exactly they were when they left and how long they were in Egypt for. But it's at least 25 years later. Okay, Jesus now, as he starts his public ministry, it's widely kind of accepted that he was about 30. So it's about 20, you know, at least 25 years, but we don't know, it could be 26 years, 27 years, it's by the by really. But there's a huge gap, and actually Matthew doesn't tell us anything at all, he just jumps this 20 odd year period. The only thing we have is in Luke's gospel where he says, oh and Jesus when he was 12, he was hanging out in the temple And Mary and Joseph left and they didn't realize they'd left their son and then had to go back to him. And he says, well, I'm in my father's house. Where did you expect me to be? And this is 12-year-old Jesus who's kind of the Pharisees and the religious leaders are marveling at a 12-year-old at what he's saying and how he's speaking. I mean, how many 12-year-olds do you know that you'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Not many. Most of them, you're like, what are you saying? I don't understand you anymore. Um... So we don't know what happened in between, but we do know this, that Joseph was a carpenter. So Jesus would have been a carpenter. He would have been brought up in the family tradition. And it wouldn't have just been woodwork. It would have been metalwork and all sorts of things. But they would have been poor. They would be very poor. And actually, they live in Nazareth. It's like the backwater. It's like the rubbish place to live. It's not a desirable place to be. And that's where you find Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And then Matthew picks up, and this is what he says. Uh, He picks up 20-odd years later in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come into his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I read this earlier this week. <laughs> I'd read it before, obviously, but I reread Matthew 3, and I thought, oh my days, how have I wound up with this passage? Carl has deliberately done it so that he's not here, and I have to do the first 12 verses of Matthew 3. I believe that. And it, you've got, you meet John the Baptist for the first time in Matthew's Gospel. You meet him and we know a little bit about him, again from Luke. Luke, helpfully, seem, because he's a doctor, gives a lot more detail than Matthew seems to. Matthew seems to just kind of go, well, here's what you need to know. Whereas Luke gives you that kind of added extra detail. We know that his mum is Elizabeth, his dad is Zachariah, and they were a, a godly older couple who uh, were barren for a long time and prayed to the Lord, and then they gave, in their old age, uh, were gifted their son, John. And um, they're relatives of Mary and Joseph, relatives of Mary. So um, you can only guess and only assume that John and Jesus, because they were born at a similar time, hung out as kids spent time together, messed around, did things that kids did. Um, and then we meet him as a man some 25 years later. And we read a little bit about John and who he is in verse 3. Matthew brings to life the significance of this man in the desert. And he says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight. Now we talked about this in the first week that Matthew more than any other gospel quotes the Old Testament and he's doing it again here. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 which is this kind of passage about, it's a prophecy so it's a kind of a, a truth telling of the, of the future. If something is going to happen in the future. At the time in Isaiah 40 God's people are in the wilderness, in the desert, pretty, you know far from God and not having the greatest of times. They're struggling along. And so there's this prophecy given that it's okay, one day there's going to be someone who comes. There's going to be someone who comes to rescue you. There's going to be someone that brings hope to you in the future and transforms your world um, and create hope for you. And within this prophecy, there's also, it says, there's going to be somebody who comes before that, almost as a sign. There's going to be someone that comes just before this one who changes the world. Almost, I kind of think of it, you know, you see... Um, American TV shows, or even real life, I suppose, and the president's convoy. And they always have like loads of these bikes, and they close off every single street, and it's like 10 minutes before the convoy actually arrives. They're preparing the way. They're making sure nobody can get in the way, that nobody can cause any troubles. They're making the path straight. That's a little bit about the prophecy here. There'd be someone that comes that just carves away, that points and tells you this is the time that this promised Messiah, this promised Savior that all Israel has been waiting for for so long is going to come. And then Matthew says... Here he is, the one that come before. Here he is, the one that is written about in Isaiah 40. He's making it plain that the hope bringer is about to come. And this is significant because in the life of Israel, there has been 400 years of silence. Throughout that whole time, there's always been a prophet. There's always been someone that's saying, it's okay, the Messiah's coming. It's okay, there's something to look forward to. There's hope. There's someone that's been pointing them back to God. But for 400 years, there's been nothing. And then... Bang, John the Baptist arrives. He's a prophet of God and he fulfills what was written in Isaiah. But further to that, I mean, Malachi 3 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will then suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
Undoubtedly, clearly, if you piece the Bible together, John the Baptist is this one who carves the way, the one who has just appeared but sets the tone for somebody more significant who's going to come along. And I find it really interesting when I think about John the Baptist. I'm cheating a little bit because I'm going to jump to Matthew 11. Um, But in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison without me kind of ruining the story and what happens uh, to his head. Um, There you go. Um, But Jesus says this about this man. He says this description of John the Baptist, this one who we've just met in chapter 3. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's some praise, isn't it? Uh, Of all people ever. Now, Jesus discounts himself because he was born from a virgin. Nobody else gets born from a virgin, no matter what they say on Sky News. Here, he says, the greatest person ever born, in a conventional sense, (laughs) is John the Baptist. He's the greatest. When we think of greatness, our minds drift, don't they, to people like Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Stephen Gerrard, Florence Nightingale. Even King David. They're the people we think of. King David, he slayed giants. He was an amazing man in history. He did so much good. But no, it's John the Baptist. So I kind of just wanted to change how we looked at this passage ever so slightly and go, well, what made John so great? What was so good about John the Baptist that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would say he's the greatest one ever born? And often, we think of greatness in terms of stature, don't we? You know, great kings, great queens, people that are born into wealth, uh, superstars, footballers, you know, Messi and Ronaldo. Um, They're fantastic. Or musicians, our favorite bands, they're the superstars. They're the greats. But actually, true greatness is not measured in uh, just who you are or what you're born into. You know, if you're born in a family line, you become king. You know, that doesn't mean you're a great automatically. I mean, Herod called himself Herod the Great. He was far from great with his actions and what he chose to do with his life. It got me thinking about King jo- uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, the North Korean dictator. <laughs> and he's a bit of a character. I've got to be careful in case they're watching. Um, they do that, you know. Um, but a quick Google search gives you a few facts about this man. Did you know? that uh, the North Korean dictator learned to drive when he was three years old. Isn't that amazing? He's a great guy. Did you also know that he's an artist and a composer? And he has composed many pieces of music and drawn many things. Did you also know he loves golf? And his dad also, the previous dictator of North Korea, was a keen golfer too. And in 18 holes of golf, his dad once shot 11 holes in one. In one round. I mean, who's played golf here? I mean, the best golfers in the world do not hit 11 holes in one in one round of 18. He'd be buying a lot of drinks as well, I tell you. But he's striving for greatness. I mean, he's failing miserably, isn't he? Because he says, I'm a better golfer than my father. No, you're not. Or you're both rubbish. You know, he's striving for greatness, but he's failing miserably. You see, if he was just great automatically, he wouldn't need to try and prove to his people and prove to the world how good he is. But greatness isn't simply in what we're born into or the position that we're given, but it's rather what we do with our lives, what we give our lives to. That's how we measure greatness. You see, John, in the eyes of the world, is far from great. 
He's weird, isn't he? He's eccentric. He's off the charts. I mean, this is what we learn about him in 12 short verses. Verse 1, he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I don't know how that started. I don't know if he went round and he found one person or he was doing it to the trees and the bushes and somebody overheard him and said, oh, you've got a great message. And then one person came and then crowds came. I don't know. It sounds like the kind of thing he would do. That he's, he's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's probably more happy hanging out with the plants and animals than it is with people. You kind of picture this kind of, you know, long hair and a bit kind of ditzy. He probably wasn't. He was pretty hard and full on. But you, you kind of, it, it, he was a nomadic desert dweller at home in the wild as opposed to being a city boy. Wouldn't have been interested in business and wearing a suit and making lots of money. He'd have a bit of edge to him. Verse 4, you read that he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. Now, we might think that's a bit odd because we don't dress in that way, but some people wear foxes and things, don't they? So that's up to them. But it was commonplace back then to have things of, you know, to wear camel hair and leather belts, but it was commonplace for the poor. It wasn't common for those that were great, those that had stature, those that were fantastic, but those that had nothing. That is what they would wear, the poor. Also, he didn't eat fine dinners. He didn't get taken out and sign autographs for people. Again, he's having locusts and wild honey. Now, again, we might go, oh, my goodness, that sounds a bit weird. But again, if you're poor, that's what you would eat. Even today, I mean, they're like grasshoppers, in effect. Even today in the Middle East and that part of the world, I'm reliably told that they still eat that kind of food. That actually, And it's always associated with the poor, those that don't have too much this man then is a desert-dwelling poor man who's a bit off the wall. He's a bit different to everybody else. You know, that gives me real heart. I don't know, does it not give you heart that if God can use this guy, and this guy is the greatest man ever born of a woman, then surely God can use me as well with my weirdness and my differences, and God can use you with your weirdness. I'm not looking at anybody in particular, um, just in case you're worried. But if God can use that guy in the purposes of, uh, of his plan, that he can use us too to do his work. But it also tells us that it's more than just being a man or a woman, isn't it? It's more than just who we are. Actually, what makes him great is the message that he carries. What makes him great is what he gives his life for. And his message actually is one of, of when I read this passage of John the Baptist, I see amazing faith. But also his message is one of repentance. And that's where we kind of read those things that are a little bit hard sometimes to stomach. Those things that we go, oh, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Let's hope he avoids verse 12. But he's a man of faith. That's the first thing I just want to kind of look at when we look at John and how actually we can be people of faith as well. You know, he's in the wilderness. He's in the wild. And he just starts declaring the things of God like a prophet of old would. Starts saying, no, this is what's happening. This is true. He declares in verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people start to travel to hear him. It says people travel from Jerusalem, from Judea, from the region all about the Jordan. They were all going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people are coming. People are hearing this. Oh, have you heard about this guy in the wild? Have you heard about John the Baptist? He's saying all these amazing things. There's a real power, a real anointing upon him. You now, sometimes that happens, doesn't it? When the Holy Spirit comes upon people, it, he can use certain people at certain times to do incredible things. 
And we can sit afar and go, oh, I don't know if that's a real move of God or not. Well, let's just say, okay, well, God's at work. And okay, if God's causing people through whoever it is to transform lives, then that's a good thing. Whether we agree with it or not, whether it sits with our theological stance and framework or not, if God is using people to further his kingdom today, fantastic. If they're preaching the gospel, fantastic. If they're not, we've got a problem. But let's just assume that they are in this case, just as John is here teaching and sharing the things of God. This crazy, hippie, different man, people are going out to him from all over the place to hear what he has to say. And he's baptizing them in the River Jordan. That's why he's got his title. He's not John, son of Zechariah. He's John the Baptist because he's baptizing tons and tons of people. We even read that people are going for the wrong reasons. You know you've drawn a crowd when people are coming because they've come to get you. You know, you've drawn a crowd because people have come to go, what's this guy really about so that I can do him in? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just as a little heads up, over however long, say five years, that this is going to take to go through Matthew, 10 years. You're going to hear a lot about Pharisees. You're going to hear a lot about Sadducees because, I mean, they cause quite a lot of trouble, really. And these are the religious leaders. These are the guys that you think, oh, these are the guys I should be listening to. Um, But no, I mean, as a kind of introduction to them, Pharisees would be connected to a local place of worship that often be kind of like, you know, I suppose the equivalent of like a lay reader or a lay preacher today in like Methodism or, do they have lay readers in Anglicanism? Yeah, that kind of level of leadership, if that makes sense. Um, And they'd be well known to the locals. Uh, They'd be really good at what they do, keeping the law, keeping the rules. Everyone would look at them and go, wow, you're really holy. I want to be like you. And then you'd have the Sadducees, and the Sadducees would be like an elite version of Pharisees. They'd be like, I'm not a Pharisee, I'm better than you. Um, And they'd be in the temple, and they'd be in their little groups and their little holy huddles, um, and they'd be separate from the common people like John the Baptist. They wouldn't want anything to do with him. Um, They'd often be wealthy and have kind of priestly lines. So in other words, they think they're great because of their stature. They think they've made it because of what they've been born into. And they would compete for power and wealth and fame. And John affectionately refers to them as a brood of vipers. You know, it's a compliment, isn't it? Um, And what he's saying is they are sneaky. They are subtle. You know, just as you'd have to watch vipers, you know, if you're out camping and you saw one, you'd have to keep an eye on it because you think he's going to strike when I least expect. The same is true of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you bear that in mind as we go through Matthew, that these guys are sneaky. These are the kind of guys that, you know, are shifty and behind the scenes. And as Carl does his great impression, the guys that are going, that's what they're doing. And even at the start of Matthew, you start to see it, that John says, here's this brood of vipers that are going to strike. And the point of, I think he's saying this is, we can sometimes go and we can hear from God and we're in completely the wrong place and we've come from completely the wrong reasons, but God can override that still. I mean, you might be here this morning and you've come from completely the wrong reason. For whatever reason you've come, I don't know why. But actually that God can override that this morning. Even if we've got hard hearts, that if we just say, okay, God, speak to me, he will. Verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist, he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, for John to say, because John is the one that's come before, he hasn't seen anything yet. Jesus hasn't been unveiled 
in some way. He hasn't been baptized yet. That's later in the chapter. He hasn't had his public, here I am world. I am he who you've been waiting for. That hasn't happened. And yet he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's putting his neck on the line. This guy's got to have a great faith, hasn't he, to believe what he is truly saying is actually true. Because he's risking everything. He's risking his reputation, not that he probably has one because he's a bit of a wild man. But he's risking his life in front of these Pharisees and these Sadducees to say, kingdom of heaven it is at hand, you need to repent. And I tell you, repentance even today is not a popular message. We don't like hearing about it because we don't like hearing about that we might be wrong, that we might make mistakes in life, that we might need a little bit of help. I mean, this is amazing. Verse 11, we read actually he's got a huge faith. He says, I baptized with water. And what he would do, he'd fully immerse people under the water, um, a symbol of death and new life, but also a cleansing that they've confessed their sin. As they're baptized, they're cleansed and made new. So he was doing a great job. But then he says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. I mean, that's amazing. If you kind of put yourself, I like to kind of put myself in the Bible story a little bit. Imagine you're John the Baptist. Imagine you've been this outcast in society all your life. Everyone thinks you're a bit weird. No one gives you the time of day. And all of a sudden, everyone's coming to hear what I've got to say. Everybody loves me. Everybody thinks my message is fantastic. It goes to your head, right? It goes to my head. I'd be thinking, oh, I'm the bee's knees. I've made it. I'm the main man. Come on. But John doesn't get ahead of himself. This is where we see his, his faith. He knows his purpose, his message. He knows his place. We get so carried away, don't we? I'll tell you a story. I once scored this amazing, because it's me. It's amazing. I was in a, a final of a football match. I had, you know, six, seven matches to get through to this final against a, a really good team. And I scored a hat-trick in the final, and we won 3-0. But it wasn't like a hat-trick of tappings. You know, it was a 25-yard right-foot volley into the top corner. It was a, a free-kick in open play over the wall and in, and probably an overhead kick or something. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Some of that might be speculation. I did score a hat-trick, though, and they were good goals. But I thought, oh, I'm amazing. You know, hero of 2003. You know, I met Simon Thomas off of Blue Peter, and I shook his hand. Oh, yeah, you're laughing. It was amazing. And I thought, next year, you know, everyone's going to remember my name. Everyone's going to be going, Gower, Gower. Nobody remembered me. But I got to the semi-final the following year, and, you know, who better to take the penalty, because we got a penalty, to put us through than the hat-trick hero from the year before. You know what I go and do? I go and fluff it and completely miss it. And in my rage find the nearest fence and smash my foot as hard against the fence as I've ever done in my life, bruise my toes completely and my nail falls off my big toe. So I don't play football for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know why I did that? Because I'd started to believe my own hype. I'd started to think, you know what? It's not too late for me. Liverpool still might want me. <laughs> and still even today with knees that don't work. I have this hope in the back of my mind that one day I'll play at Anfield. It'll be beautiful. But we start to believe our own hype, don't we? We start to think, wow, I've made it. It's all about me. 
But you know what? John doesn't do that. Because John has faith that there's somebody better than him. That there's somebody greater than him. And you know what? I don't want there to be any hype here at our church. I don't want us to whip up a kind of atmosphere of overhyping stuff and empty rhetoric. I just want people to meet Jesus. Because he's greater than that. It's not a show. It's not a performance. It's about meeting Jesus. And that's what we have to be about as people as well. Because otherwise, if we start whipping stuff up, we believe in our own hype. We believe in we're the main event somehow. When actually, it's about him. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. For the conviction of things not yet seen. You could definitely apply that to John the Baptist, couldn't you? He's not seen it yet, but he's so sure. He's so full of faith. Even though the crowds are there to hear John, even though they're pressing into him and wanting to hear about him, and he's the guy who's baptizing people, he says, you've got it wrong. There's one coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. I can't even carry his stinking sandals. He's so much greater than I am, so much greater than I will ever be. And there's a real boldness upon the way that John declares these things too. You see, John's life and a measure of what a faithful life looks like here is, it's not about fame and fortune, but it's about a calling. It's about someone other than himself. You know, John believes that he can't rescue people, but he's making a way. He's making it clear there's someone who can. Can't we be a little bit like John the Baptist in that? Can't we remove obstacles for people towards Christianity? Obstacles towards faith that they may hold. That we can clear a path. That we can create a place where it's easy. We don't have things that get in the way for you to be able to meet with Jesus. For you to be able to encounter him. We don't want to be stumbling blocks, do we? We want to be people that carve a road straight to him. That it's so clear we're not in the way, but we're merely pointing our way towards this rescuer. And it's even at the expense of his own reputation. Even if he looks a bit weird, he's willing to do it. And you know what I love about John? He's just getting on with it. So often we, can, we have this dream, don't we? You know, we could even have it, oh, okay, we say, well, this is the dream in five years' time, the 2020 vision. And somehow we think, well, in 2020 we'll have made it and we'll be there. And well, it's no, because there'll be fresh vision because our vision will be always we want to see more and more people won for the kingdom of God. So that vision in one sense is never truly fully met because there's always going to be people that need to hear about Jesus. And sometimes we just get so caught up in the future that we forget to actually just do stuff in the present. We forget that our role right now is to make clear that path. Just as John the Baptist did in a really significant way. You know, he's declaring the things of God and his faith says, his faith says, I care more about what God says of me than I care what man would say. That's the level of John's faith. But that's the level of faith we have to have in the things unseen, in the things we're hoping for. That it's, I know this might sound silly. I know I have to put my neck on the line here. But you know what? I care more about what God would say and what God would have me do than what man might think of me. So here is a man, John the Baptist, not great in the eyes of man, but great in the eyes of Jesus. Which would you rather have over your life? Would you rather have greatness and fame because I told you you're great? Or would you rather have 
here's my son, here's my daughter. They're fantastic. They're great. I love them. They're doing my will. They're, they're being my people. They're sharing and declaring the things of God. You see, I think that's possible with faith, that we have a faith that isn't shaken, a faith that doesn't swerve, a faith in the fact that God can transform anything and anybody, that God's grace is enough to change the darkness of our own hearts. He can change the darkness of other people's. That's the kind of faith we have to have. Verse 11 continues, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. To be full of the Holy Spirit is to be full of life. It's to be full of newness, to be a new creation the Bible talks about. In other words, Jesus is greater than John will ever be. This one who's come to rescue is the greatest. John baptizes in water. And that's great. But Jesus gives you God. Father, Son, Spirit, the Trinity. God gives himself to us. We get to have the presence of God living within our hearts. The other thing I just want to look at, I mean, obviously that gives you life, and that's why it's so great. The other thing I just want to look at here is what John actually says. So we can see that he's got faith in the way that he declares things, but what he actually says is not the most popular topic for us. Some of you have kind of got squeaky bum syndrome even now because you've heard what I've said already or you've read it before and you know what John says. But actually, it gets to the very heart of what this faith looks like. Because what leaves his lips is a call to repentance. And repentance, in the easiest way of me saying it, is a literal turning around. So if God is here and we're going this way, to repent would be to turn back and face back towards God. That's in the most simple kind. That's what John is calling people to. Those of you that are really far off over here, you need to turn around. You need to change your whole entire life, everything in it, the way you look at life, your culture, your worldview, everything has to change. And so the people are flocking around John and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as in other words, now is the time. Look busy. Jesus is coming. That's what he's saying. And we read that people are turning around after they confess their sins. And um, I kind of got to explain, because we're in Matthew and we want to kind of be thorough, got to kind of, you know, sin today is kind of, I think, misrepresented and people don't really understand what it is or, you know, say, well, it's this and it's not that. Um, It's not simply just being naughty, (laughs) which is, I think, how often we kind of dumb it down. It's, oh, I've been a naughty boy. I've been a sinner. It's, it's like misery is connected to this word. Um, but it's, it's more than that. It's kind of a lawlessness, faithlessness, um, a wandering from God, that we're just in constant rebellion to him, to the point that it's disrupted this relationship, to the point that we have zero relationship with God. We may not even believe God exists. That's a result of sin, not intellect, sin. And it's, our sin is, I suppose the best description would be, it's sometimes it's just going too far in the things that we do or say or think. But it's sometimes just not going far enough in the things that we say or we think or we do. You know, it's the root of all evil, really, in the world. Everything that is evil and wrong is as a result of sin. Racism, sexism, homophobia, rebellion, war. Pride, the root cause of all of that is sin, according to the Bible. That everything is caused by that. 
And actually, if we don't tackle that sin, if that sin isn't changed, then the problems don't dealt with. You know, we're not going to see transformation in the lives of our friends, our family, our nation, our world, if sin isn't called out, if sin isn't seen as the problem. If we just think racism is the problem, we've got our head in the sand. It's, a, it's as a result of sin. And in order to fully deal with sexism or racism or anyism, we have to deal with sin. We have to deal with the human heart. That's what's wrong. Once we have the diagnosis, which we do, thankfully, through Scripture, something that we all carry, the question is, what are we going to do with it? And that's the point of what John's saying is, I know you've all got a problem. Here's how you deal with it. You repent, you turn around, you come back to God. And you know what? God is there with open arms waiting for you. That's the beauty of what John says. The one's coming who's come to rescue you. It's not too late. Whatever we've done, whatever we're going to do, it's not too late. He's coming. I mean, he says some strong things, doesn't he? This is verse 12, speaking of Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, and he'll gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. <laughs> I shouldn't say that with a smile on my face, really. That's some hard stuff that John the Baptist says there. He says, at the end of all time, God is not going to separate people by race or by class or by sex or by your education or whether you were a king or you were a queen or whether you were poor or whether you are rich. But the separation in those that have turned around and those that haven't. Those that have turned around, it says, well, he will gather them into his barn. In other words, they will come home to be with him. They will be safe. They will be with him forever. But of those that don't, the chaff, the chaff is the, the useless bit that they just chuck away. It has no purpose. It says we'll burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, what, what John the Baptist is preaching as his message is, if we don't turn around, we're going to burn an unquenchable fire. That's what he says. You know, that's why I was like, when I read this, I was like, oh, man, I've got to preach this. You know, we, you know, and so often people just avoid passages like this because it's not a popular message. It's not something that we want to hear. We don't like being told that maybe we need to change. But it's John's way of saying, you know what? Hell is a very real place. A very real place. And the only thing that prevents that from being our eternal destiny isn't our stature, isn't our greatness, isn't what we're born into, but it's the grace of God. It's the fact that God gives himself in this rescuer to save us. That actually Jesus would step into the breach and take the hit for us. You know, if we're sinful and we make mistakes and we're rebellion to God, the judgment is death, and yet Jesus says, I'll take it for them. It's like Jesus, you know, someone having a gun to my head right now, and Jesus stepping in front of me and taking the bullet for me. He gives his life that I would go free. That's what happens. That's what even here in Matthew 3, John is saying, this is what is going to happen. This is what is taking place. That the rescuer is here. If only we would turn around. If only we would say, okay, God, I know I'm not God. I'm man. I've made mistakes. We will find forgiveness and we'll find life and we can be full of the Holy Spirit and have this joy and this peace and this hope and all the things that we've been looking for in life. 
Verse 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Which is John's way of saying, look, if we meet with Jesus, it should change everything. You should look different to what you look like before. Not physically. It's not like, you know, become a Christian, grow a beard. But although, although, if you're a man, it's embracing masculinity. We should look different. There should be the, the fruit of the Spirit should be there. There should be more peace upon our lives, more joy, more hope, more, more love, more gentleness, more self-control, more faithfulness, more patience. We should be different. God's Spirit changes us. Because that, that means that repentance, if we were going to repent this morning, is more than just, just saying, I'm sorry. You know, often the only time we say I'm sorry, I really wanted my son to say I'm sorry this morning. I really wanted him to look at me and say, I'm really sorry, Daddy. Even though he can't talk, because, you know, I was hurting on the inside. Still am a little bit. But I'm sorry doesn't necessarily mean change, does it? We only often apologize if we're caught out. You know, we're carrying on doing this stuff. It's like, oh, I'm really sorry. But I'm only sorry because I got caught. I would have just carried on otherwise. I'm sorry often doesn't cut it. It's more than that. It's our whole life turning around. And you know, sometimes we minimize this, don't we? We minimize sin. We minimize this message of repentance. But I want you to see how massive this is. It's so massive that the Son of God gave his life for it. You know, and if we minimize it, if we say sin's not really a problem, we don't really need to repent. We minimize Jesus and all that he gave his life for. We minimize the whole of the gospel. We minimize the cross and its worth. And we minimize the new life that we enjoy as well. You know, this morning I could have stood at the front and I could have said, look guys, you better turn or you're going to burn. Some people do that. <laughs> but you know, I think it's, you know, I don't want, I mean, I'd love for you to come to faith if you don't know Jesus, but not through fear of hell. Through delight in God. You know, it's not, oh, I'm really scared that I might burn in unquenchable fire. It's God is so much greater than I could possibly imagine, so I'd love to get to know him. That's a better reason. I mean, both will get you there, but that is a better reason. That we'd enjoy life, that we'd enjoy God. And he says that he's going to baptize us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a new life. You know, being a Christian is actually really exciting. And it's fun. I'm, yeah, I'm happy because I'm a Christian, because I know Jesus. It's not this kind of, you know, songs of praise, dull. I mean, if you like songs of praise, I apologize. But like the way it's portrayed, that there's no joy. I tell you, I'm more joyful than I've ever been because I know Jesus. We should delight in the fact that we can know him, not just come to him through fear of hell. But the reality is we're all in this predicament. It's only God's grace. It's only that that keeps us from there. I'm rubbish at clicking my fingers, as you can tell. But if you've not made that decision, if you haven't turned around as John the Baptist calls us to, then why not do it today? What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for blinding lights? The blinding lights have already been. He's already come. And hopefully this morning, maybe in some small way, I could have made that path straight for you. So that you can see Jesus this morning. And that's the call. You know, hell's real, but Jesus is way better. 
Jesus is worth knowing right now. And just about, this is kind of my concluding thought about this. For, so that's kind of, you know, if you don't know Jesus yet, then today's the day to turn around. We don't know what tomorrow brings, you know. Today is the day to turn around. But if we're a Christian already, it's a, you know, it's not just a, a one-time thing. It's a constant turning ourselves around because our default position is to get things wrong. It's a consistent, God, I need your help. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm back with you. I want to live for you. I want to shine brightly for you. I want to I wanna change the world in your power. And to do that, I think we can learn something from John. That's what I love about John. He is weird and he is a bit out there, but he's got some steel, hasn't he? He's got a boldness that I think sometimes we lose. You know, as Christians, we lose that edge. We might lose that spiritual boldness that we should have. I mean, I think he's awesome, you know. But in society... The picture of, you know, a modern man and being a steely man isn't John the Baptist. Even being a modern Christian man isn't someone like John the Baptist. But I think in some way, actually, we should be recovering some of that as men and as women. Actually, not, you know, I mean, today the kind of perfect man is, you know, just a bit of a bloat. I mean, to be honest, I think it's just a bit wet, isn't it? You know, into fashion. I mean, whatever. But actually, it should be, uh, for men and women, it should be being authentic, being passionate, being bold, being enthusiastic, having godly ambition. And that's what John is. He's 100% committed to his cause. He's 100% devoted. He's 100% passionate. He's not interested in whether he's got decaf or no calf or any calf or whether he's got the latest blazer or any of that. He's just bang, 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 bang. He's not even into kind of persuasive talk and looking the part so that people might think, oh, he looks good, so therefore he must know about Jesus. He's just who he is. And we're all made differently. And we're all made differently for a reason. But we can all have that spiritual boldness and that spiritual edge, just as John did. We can all carry a godly ambition, can't we? An ambition that says... I want to see as many people as possible meet Jesus Christ as their saviour. Right? That's something we should carry, isn't it? That's something we should have. And we can be authentic. We can be like John, committed to this cause. So much so, John, is that he gives his life for it. So here's the challenge is, guys, have a faith that cannot be destroyed. Have a faith that believes God is bigger. God is bolder. God is better than any problem or circumstance that you will face this side of heaven. He is bigger, better, bolder, greater. Have a faith that declares that. Have a faith that says, no matter what I face, I know I can trust God. And secondly, this message of repentance, I'm not saying leave here and go and stand on the street corner and say, turn or burn. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, part of our message has to be, we need to turn around. We need to see that actually hope is found in Jesus and we're walking the wrong way. We have to be people that signpost the way to the destination. We are not the destination. We are not the end game, but Jesus is. And we've got to be people that signpost it well. And that is where greatness is. If you want to live a great life, if you want your life to amount to something, this is what greatness is, pointing and signposting people towards Jesus. John the Baptist, the greatest man born of women. Why? Because he signposted people to Jesus. That's what he gave his life for. That's what we should do.
I believe that when we do and we have that edge and that boldness to believe God is greater and can overcome, that we'll see God do amazing things. Should we just pray together? God, we thank you that you uh, made a way, that you forged a path through someone like John, that you pointed people back to yourself. And God, we just want to take that time that if we're a Christian here today to say thank you to you for the men and women that you've placed in our own lives that have signposted Jesus for us, for those that have given themselves that we might hear of Jesus. God, we just thank you for them. We we pray that we would become people like that, that we would be able to be people that signpost you with the way that we live our lives. And God, help us to display and characterize what it looks like to have new life. And so we just pray right now that Holy Spirit, you come and you would fill us once again, that you'd empower us with your presence, that we'd know that life-transforming power, that we can go from this place with boldness, that we can go from this place with a great faith, that says Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, Jesus is able. And Lord, we pray as well that if we don't know you, I mean, just pray this with me. All of us can pray this, you know. God, I want to turn back to you, whether it's for the first time or the 5,000th time. And acknowledge, God, that there are things that I've rebelled against and been faithless in. And God, we just pray you'd forgive us our sins as we know you do because you gave your son for us. And so because of that forgiveness, we rejoice in the new life that you give to us and we ask you to come in power, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.